1: With Discover, limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Volume. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JASONT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in present Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1 877 770 Stop in Louisiana. 1 800 270 7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1 877 8 HOPE NY or text HOPE NY to 467 369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1 800 889 9789 in Tennessee. Visit www. One eight, 1-800-GAMBLER.NET in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Monday, everybody. I am Jason Timp. I hope all of you guys have your weeks off to a great start well tonight 's outcome went about exactly as I expected. I told you guys right after game two that I had seen something from Boston that i hadn 't seen from any basketball team in recent nBA history, and i didn 't I knew right there in that moment that brooklyn didn 't really have a chance. We are going to spend this entire show talking about brooklyn tonight 's game this series the entire Brooklyn KD era. We're going to get into all of that. For those of you guys who want a reaction to the Raptor Sixers game or the Mavericks Jazz game later tonight, I will be breaking that those games down in their entirety in tomorrow night's show. I will also be releasing some film content on those games tomorrow morning. So follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT and you'll see some stuff about those games. But like I said, tonight is all about The Nets, I talked for those of you guys who have followed my show over the course of the last couple of years, you guys know that I have a brand of basketball that I am drawn to. We talk about this a lot with coaches. Coaches have like a core philosophy and you have to be malleable around that philosophy, but everybody has a core philosophy. The way if they could choose a way to play the game of basketball, this is the way that they would play. And for me, for those of you guys who have listened to the show long enough, you guys know how I feel about switching everything on defense, prioritizing wings over guards and bigs, kind of going with positionless, ultra modern basketball, five out on offense, lots of driving and kicking, and everyone on the floor is an offensive threat, and then the ability to switch everything on defense. And there's a core reason why I believe in that philosophy. And it has a lot to do with the way the game is officiated and also with the way that other teams around the league are playing and the way that that kind of gives you an advantage against those teams. You know, I believe Boston is the favorite to win the championship at this point. Their defense is, in my opinion, like I've said, the best defense of this era. I think it's going to carry them, health permitting, to getting the trophy in mid June. But I'm not sure that they're as much better. As, the, uh, as much better than the good teams around the league as they demonstrated against the Nets. I think this was a really bad matchup. And I think there are very, some, some very specific reasons why. What is the goal of a switching defense? What is the goal of having a ton of wings? What is the goal of playing that modern positionless style of basketball? The goal is to do what the Rockets did to the Warriors in 2018, to stagnate you, and to turn you into an isolation basketball team. The trick there is that's the way the Nets like to play. And so, in a lot of ways, they walked headlong into Boston's trap. The difference is, the way KD and Kyrie play does work on most nights in most matchups. You guys have probably been told by a lot of talking heads and fans on Twitter, wherever it is that you consume the game, you've probably been told that the Nets were bad this year. And they were. Overall, in the aggregate. But the truth is, is that with KD and Kyrie on the floor, they were really good. I pointed out this year that they averaged, I think it was like 123 points per 100 possessions when KD and Kyrie were on the floor together. They went 12-5 in their last 17 games. During that stretch, the last 17 games of the regular season, so almost a quarter of the season, for that last quarter of the season, they had the third best offense in all of basketball. They had the eighth best defense in all of basketball. They had massive, impressive, dominant wins on the road in Miami and in Philly, making really good teams, probably you know, two of the top four or five teams remaining making them look helpless on their home floor. That's how good the Nets were. But those teams, both of those teams, play very different style. The, Net, the Miami Heat play, they do a lot of switching, but they also rely on Bam Adebayo a lot as a drop coverage big, so they're a little bit more traditional in their defensive approach. They play guys who are undersized defensively. They play guys like Duncan Robinson and Tyler Harrow who are not great defensive players. And then same goes for Philly. You can cause a lot of problems for Embiid and Harden by running them in transition. They don't have a ton of foot speed within those two guys. Their foot speed is elsewhere on the floor. Harden's a really bad defensive player at this point in his career. Embiid's a great defensive player when he can hang out around the rim, but he struggles a little bit against guys with speed on the perimeter that can also shoot. So both of those teams were more traditional NBA teams. Boston represents the perfect example of what I love about the way the game of basketball is changing. They have those, that incredibly positionless lineup. They have five, six, seven guys on the roster that you can't attack in isolation. I mean, you can, but you're not going to get great looks. Did you guys see the difference in shot quality in that fourth quarter? KD made a lot of shots in that fourth quarter. Difficult shots. Did you see the shots Jason Tatum was getting? Do you see the stuff Marcus Smart, Al Horford, and Jalen Brown were getting at the rim? Jason Tatum was consistently getting KD off of his body through ball screens and hitting jump shots against guys that were dropping off in the switch, attacking Seth Curry in switches. Jason Tatum was getting great looks. KD was taking his pick between an arsenal of dominant defensive players. Kyrie was taking his pick from an arsenal of dominant defensive players. We got eight games total out of KD and Kyrie in this series. Kyrie was amazing offensively in game one. KD was really, really good offensively in game four. Outside of those two games, those two guys struggled almost the entire rest of the series. Because that's the way this matchup worked out. Brooklyn is accustomed to playing a certain style of basketball. Switch everything. Try to attack off the dribble with isolation guys against specific matchups. Problem is, Boston is the evolved, better version of that team. They play the same brand of basketball as Brooklyn, except for they do it with five great defensive players that are committed to the job. They do it, but they don't have weak offensive links on the floor. Look at how good Grant Williams was spotting up and shooting in this series. Look at the success Peyton Pritchard had attacking off of some of that attention. Marcus Smart, great offensive series. Al Horford made monster plays on both ends of the floor, but also on offense. That Boston team does everything Brooklyn does better than Brooklyn does it. It's a bad matchup for them. And so I'm still picking Boston to win the title, but I don't think that Boston was... As, you know, Brooklyn, in a weird way, got a bad draw. And that's the problem with being the 7th seed. That's the problem with having those issues in the regular season. That's the problem with having a mercurial star that doesn't like to show up to work unless the conditions are perfect. So that's kind of all part of that entire organism that caused those problems. I'm glad KD had a great offensive game. Because one of the biggest talking points in this series has been KD needs to do more. KD needs to do more. And my response was, yeah, you're right. KD wasn't good enough. There's a lot of really fair criticism that we have to throw to KD from this series. But what did I also say? I said it wasn't going to be enough anyway. I said you could plug in prime LeBron into this series, and he would fare better than KD has. But I thought the gap in talent between the two teams was too much. I'm glad that KD threw such an amazing offensive punch in this game and it still wasn't enough so that at least you guys could see a little bit what I was talking about. Had KD played to the absolute peak of his ability in this series, it probably goes five or six games, but Boston wins. They were the better team. So the question becomes, what did we learn from this series? I know that. Jason Tatum is better at attacking Brooklyn's defense than KD was at attacking Boston's defense. It's not a simple matter of Jason Tatum was better at basketball in this series. He was, but there's context there. To me, it is more of a question of did KD hitch his wagon to, to the right, did he hitch it to the right wagon? You know what I mean? Like, did KD surround himself with the right group of guys. That's the more valid question. And we're going to get into that here just a little bit. But Tatum was incredible in this series. His shot making was at another level than KD's was, but he was doing it in easier matchups, which is what I predicted before the series. I thought the matchups that Tatum could attack would be his opportunity to outplay KD, and he did. His shot quality was massively better than KD's in this series. The big takeaways that I learned in this series, one, the Celtics defense is all-time great. And I think they're going to win the championship if they stay healthy. Two, we learned that KD is a bona fide... Excuse me, Jason Tatum is a bona fide, real-deal superstar. He is in the club. He is there with all of those guys at the top. Now, he has to continue to show that and win championships to get the same level of cachet in terms of his overall resume. But right now as a basketball player, Tatum is in that group. He absolutely has to have that respect. That's the level of basketball he's playing. What I learned about KD, I learned that even in his 15th season, even with all of his experience, it is possible to make him really, really, truly struggle to look like a different player. You know, I said after game two, I was like, I still think Katie's the best player in the world. I just think this is a bad matchup. I have to go back on that now. The standard I hold the best player in the world to is a very high standard. As those are, I'll just ask all the LeBron fans that are in my mentions every single day. So I can't, in my right mind, call Kevin Durant the best basketball player in the world anymore because a basketball team made him struggle in this series. I have to give a ton of that credit to Boston, but there also has to be some culpability with KD. So who takes his spot? I don't know. That's a good question. Right now, I think Giannis is by far the best player that's remaining in the playoffs, but he very well might run into this Boston team in the next round and lose. That's a very realistic outcome. But I think it's fair that we can say that KD is no longer the best player in the NBA. And then last, Kyrie Irving. And we're going to talk a little bit more about him in a minute. Is there a player in the NBA that relies more on one single shot to define his legacy than Kyrie? Since that moment, with exception of the 2017 playoff run, which he was good offensively in, he's been mostly underachieving compared to his own standard that he set for himself. Mixed in with a bunch of unprofessionalism, Mixed in with a bunch of, you know, really extremely flaky behavior. And now the Nets are in a weird predicament with what they need to do with Kyrie moving forward. But before we get into all of the little details surrounding this Net series, I'm going to bring my guy Carson on. And he's going to ask some specific questions surrounding the narrative of this series. What's up, Carson?
2: How are we doing today, Jason? I'm good, buddy. All right, well, we're playing a game called Tomorrow's Takes Today. We're getting the reactions (laughs) and thoughts out to you right now. And we're going to start with a pretty big one. And that is, what impact does this loss for the Nets have on Kevin Durant's legacy?
1: Oh, man, that's a really interesting question. I have a hard time with legacy changing Occurrences this late into someone's career. Because I feel like mm-hmm. at a certain point, we have to adjust standards based on decline. And in a lot of ways, guys like LeBron and Chris Paul have changed the way that we have to evaluate aging in stars because those two guys are so incredibly unusual. You know, the reality is, is that KD, ever since he left Oklahoma City, has been operating in most cases from a position of advantage. In 2017 and 2018, he was on, in 2019, he was on by far the most talented team in the league. And then after that, it goes to Brooklyn. And there's a reason why they were the title favorite this year, because of how good they looked against Milwaukee last year. And the things that I said about Milwaukee coming into this playoff run were the same Those same things hold true for Boston, or excuse me, for for Brooklyn. I told you guys Milwaukee was going to have a much harder path this year. The field is deeper. There are more talented teams overall. The league is better. Well, Brooklyn had the same issue, and you saw in a situation of significantly more difficulty, you saw them struggle. You know, there's a there's an important understanding that we I don't like devaluing rings. I thought what Charles Barkley did. On TNT was really lame and we talked about that in last night's show but it is true that no two rings are the same every basketball fan has a certain amount of you know understanding of the circumstances and let's just go to LeBron do you think any basketball fan gives LeBron more credit for his 2020 title with the Lakers than they do for 2016 I don't think so I think every basketball fan would acknowledge that the degree of difficulty was much harder there. In 2012, when Chris Bosh was hurt and he had to drag that team to the finals, down 3-2 to the Celtics, that's a different level of difficulty. The, being an underdog in the NBA finals against that Oklahoma City Thunder team, there's, that's a different level of difficulty. The issue that KD has is even though the 2017 and 2018 titles were real championships, real deal Jewelry championships. But the degree of difficulty was low. Extremely low. Compared to almost every championship in NBA history. The 2017 Warriors dog walked the entire league. They won 15 playoff games before they lost one. And the one game they lost was game four in Cleveland when the series was already over and Cleveland made like 21 threes in the game. So... Then moving on to 2018, same thing, you know, you benefit from Chris Paul's uh, hamstring injury to get to the finals, and then you just run over that Cleveland Cavaliers team that looked helplessly outmatched. And so that's the issue for KD in the court of public opinion, is he doesn't have the degree of difficulty attached to the championships. But at the same time, when the degree of difficulty has been higher, he's lost. And unfortunately in the court of public opinion, that's going to cost you. And I feel bad for him in a lot of ways because a lot of people forget that when LeBron signed with the Miami heat in 2011, had Dwayne Wade stayed healthy, his 2012 and 2013 titles also would have looked easy. It's been one of the Mm -hmm. things that I've, i think has been an interesting subplot of LeBron's career. Him struggling, well, the team struggling in 2012 and 2013, those championships looking hard, down 3-2 to Boston, falling down 1-0 in the finals to the Thunder as an underdog, going seven games with the Pacers in 2013, going seven games with the Spurs in 2013. All of that had to do with Tim Duncan massively outplaying Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade's knees giving up on him. LeBron was in a weird way, fortunate that that Miami Heat team kind of fell apart with health because it made everything look hard. There's no debate that LeBron faced great adversity in pursuit of his championships. Meanwhile, KD has had two incredibly easy championships compared to some of the other ones surrounding. And then when the difficulty has been higher, he's looked bad. So it's unfortunate, but it's just the reality of the way the court of of public opinion works. I personally am crediting mostly Boston for this series and I'm not going to be super hard on a year 15 player who's coming off of a torn Achilles struggling against what I think is the best defense of this era, but the court of public opinion is going to pile on him and there's a lot of evidence for those people. So I don't necessarily blame them for feeling that way.
2: I totally agree with you on the point of it's tough to me for a guy like Katie when he's 33 to have a, negative legacy altering single series a four game sample size. I do think another interesting point is uh, to me two of his best postseason runs ever were his two postseasons before this that didn't result in titles and so they're just not remembered in the same way. I mean he averaged 35 a game against the Clippers in 2019. I thought that was like maybe the best he's ever played period. He was unbelievable and he was 32 a game in that playoff run with a couple games in which he didn't play full minutes because of injury and then last year he was 34 a game and carried a completely outmatched Nets team toe-to-toe no pun intended because of the placement of his toe on that last shot with the Bucks team that won the title so I do think that's another interesting component is there is such a title or bust mentality but like sometimes a guy plays at an all-time level and it doesn't result in the title and that's really
1: not his fault we have from the chat. A, that's a great point. Really quick, yeah. really quickly, LeBron James was. I thought some people think he was the best player from 2007 to 2020. You guys know me; I'm a little bit. I'm much more slow to make that change. I thought LeBron was undisputably the best basketball player on planet Earth from 2012 to 2020. That's a what's that? Nine seasons, got four championships. So, undisputed best player alive, four championships. So you're right, Carson. It's the title or bust mentality. It just simply isn't true in a team sport. You absolutely have to have some things go your way.
2: Well, speaking of the title or bust mentality, this would certainly be a title-centric move. 100% dork says in the chat, Katie about to join Boston. Jason, what are your thoughts on that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You never know you know K- katie knows what it is if there's if there's one thing that i've really appreciated about katie in the last couple of years it's that ever since he got caught in the burner account incident he's just leaned into being exactly who he is he will direct message strangers and get into arguments with people on twitter and and that sort of thing and so what's funny is like i think KD has a very firm understanding of the fact that fairness and context are not going to be rules that are abided by here. And you know, what's funny is like, I'm okay with it from the faceless accounts. What I feel bad for KD is to have an all time great NBA player like Charles Barkley to call you a bus rider. Now, there's a valid way to make that criticism. Hey, KD. Your championships in 2017 and 2018 are real championships, but they're less difficult than some of the ones your peers won. That's fair di- criticism. Hey, right. KD, you joined a team that already was a championship team and you elevated them. That's fair. That's a fair analysis of that situation. You're a bus rider. I don't value your championships, blah, blah, blah. That's faceless account stuff. And I guarantee you, KD's fine with it from the faceless accounts. But it's a bummer when one of the all-time great NBA players goes on national TV and basically takes a dump on your name in in that kind of matter. I do feel bad for him in that regard.
2: All right. Well, obviously we had to start with KD there, but Kyrie is also inevitably super tied up in all of this because this was their vision. They built this together, and now here they are, a few years in, and they have one playoff series win. Window- Go for it and wins this year. So, where
1: they are now, what do the Nets do about Kyrie Jason? This is tough. Uh Bossman Colin Cowherd said on his pod earlier that he uh that he would not sign him. And I get yeah. that because I agree I agree from the ideology standpoint that you can't pay Kyrie Irving 50 million dollars in 2029 or 2028 or whatever it would be 2027 to to be the the level of player that he is i agree but as is always the case it's 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 you have to weigh it against the alternative and if you let Kyrie walk you don't have the flexibility really to supply kevin durant with the necessary talent to be competitive next year so the examples that i would use would be for instance, what Golden State did when they lost KD. you Or what the Clippers did when they uh, signed Blake Griffin. Even if you don't see a player in your long-term plans, Golden State had no intention of having D'Angelo Russell as a cornerstone of their franchise. What they were doing was is they were taking back an asset. An overpaid asset, but an asset. Same thing with the Clippers and Blake Griffin. I guarantee you before they signed uh, Blake, I guarantee you before they did that ridiculous presentation to him in Staples Center, I guarantee you they knew internally. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings and are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions.
1: Does the craziness of everyday life leave you feeling stressed and shedding? Since having kids, have you started to see a little more of your scalp? Are you unhappy with your hairline? When it comes to thinning hair, there are many root causes at play, and Nutrafol addresses them through a multi-targeted, whole-body approach. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, and faster growing hair with less shedding. Physician formulated with drug-free ingredients, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting key root causes of thinning. Stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole body health. Take their hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription, or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day, and you'll see results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker and healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription. And free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code Hoops, that's H-O-O-P-S. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Hoops, H-O-O-P-S. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code Hoops. That they were planning on trading in, but they needed the asset. It's... Kyrie will instantaneously, the minute he puts pen to paper, be one of the worst contracts in the league. That's a fact. He is, you know, I, I, I thought Nick Wright, who went on Cowherd's pod, I thought, put it very succinctly. He's like, Kyrie, his top end is amazing, but he basically said he's nowhere near consistently enough. He's not consistent enough with it for it to bring any real value, and that's true. It's a fact, just like his last playoff series in Boston, looks amazing in game one, shoots the Bucks just into oblivion to take a 1-0 lead, and then you didn't hear from him again the rest of the series. That's just kind of the nature of the Kyrie experience. So what you got to do is you sign Kyrie to the full whatever max he wants, and then immediately during this time frame here in the next year or so, you trade it. Because or as soon as his contract will allow you to trade him after he signs, because I know there's like a little bit of a delay. I think you have to wait till like almost the trade deadline in that first season, mm-hmm. but you trade him because there will be a team out there just like the Pistons did with Blake Griffin that will talk themselves into this is an available star. he can be had for relatively cheap. So I, I think as as awful as the Kyrie experience has been, and if I'm Brooklyn, if I'm a Brooklyn fan, if I'm a Brooklyn player, if I'm a Brooklyn coach, I want him out of here. But you got to bring him back simply for the asset.
2: So, let me ask you this. Because I think, obviously, the dynamics with Kyrie are always going to be super weird. At the same time, this regular season, minutes Katie and Kyrie played together, they had an offensive rating of 122, better than that even, which would be, you know, by far the best in the league. He has been, these last three years in Brooklyn, scoring at career volume, like 27 a game on elite efficiency. And of course, you talk about, you know, the restrictions that you would have in terms of building out the roster if they just let Kyrie go. The Nets had fifty million dollars in cap that was not on the floor in this series between Ben Simmons and Joe Harris and two of their clearly top five, five guys. So is there any part of you that looks in that and thinks, well, maybe with Peak Kyrie and with those healthy guys on the floor, it is worth sticking it out just legitimately for another? year or maybe even further than that through that contract?
1: Carson, you're a very smart man because this was, (laughs) uh, this was the, I had a very similar thought process last night. Um, the thing is, is that KD and Kyrie, we talked about this earlier in the show. Uh, For those of you who missed the beginning, the Nets were 12 and 5 in their last 17 games this season. So, almost a quarter of the season, they were pretty good. During that stretch, they were the third best offense in the league and the eighth best defense in the league. So, they have a decent ceiling. I thought we talked, we did a whole segment at the beginning about how this was just a really bad matchup in a lot of different ways. So, yeah, with Ben Simmons coming back and with Joe Harris coming back, they are a significantly better team next year. Hopefully, if everyone's healthy, you make a better regular season effort that leads to a better seed, which gives you a better opportunity to avoid a bad matchup early in the playoffs and give you a better chance of being the beneficiary of some luck, right? Because, like, for instance, part of the reason why I think the Celtics are going to win the title is because Devin Booker pulled his hamstring and Chris Middleton sprained his MCL, right? If you can avoid the more difficult matchups until later in the playoff run, that buys you time to be the beneficiary of some luck. And so I'm with you. The, here's, the, here's the devil's advocate argument. Because if I was running the Nets, I would bring K- Kyrie back and I'd run it for probably one season. But the case for trading him is each passing year, the contract gets worse because he will decline. He's a small guard. He will start to play a little bit worse each year as time goes on, and then it gets harder and harder to move the contract. Secondly, you have to start having conversations with yourself about Kyrie's value next to KD. Kyrie's value is his ability to create shots, right, in isolation. But that also happens to be Kevin Durant's best skill. If I was Brooklyn, I'd be looking at this, if I was KD in Brooklyn, I'd be looking at this more like Boston. That formula works. The one alpha dog superstar, the co-star that obviously has scoring potential but is a defensive stalwart in Jalen Brown and then role players that do all the dirty work so that Jason Tatum is bought a great deal of margin for error to do what he does best, which is score the basketball, and to draw defensive attention so that the rest of your players can make plays. If you can find a package that sends Kyrie Irving out and brings back quality, two-way players, players that aren't the same offensive ceiling as Kyrie, but that would thrive in a drive and kick basketball environment that would have the ability to capitalize in four on three scenarios and in bad ma- against bad matchups and provide a great deal of physicality and effort and ability to cover ground and everything that you need on the defensive end of the floor to succeed in these environments. That's the move you got to make. Because I think, like I said at the beginning, teams like Boston... What makes Boston so dominant is they are the direction basketball was going in. We've all been talking about this. Modern basketball, five, six, eight guys that all can run and jump and shoot and dribble and pass. Well, Boston's kind of like the closest thing we've seen to that. And you're seeing how dominant it is. So I think rather than going with let's play, you know, Bruce Brown and Andre Drummond and just count on Kyrie and KD to isolate all game long try to build a more modern basketball format move Kyrie for bigger athletes that can play two-way basketball and count on KD to carry you as a scorer that's his best ability that that would be what I would do if I was running the Nets
2: for what it's worth 83 percent of people in the chat say that the Nets should just let Kyrie walk which I think is a very big
1: number very big you just lose the asset there that's the issue like I get it I'm with you but like Again, there's enough. Ex- th- Here's the thing. Kyrie's not Russell Westbrook. He's not bad at basketball right now. Okay. Like mm-hmm. he played poorly in this series. I wouldn't want him for five years in the house. You have to not want him for five years because of his flakiness, but there's going to be someone around the league that likes him. So I, again, I agree. Don't sign him for five years and keep him for five years, but mm-hmm. don't let him walk. Cause you lose the asset. You got to sign him. Either make a run for a year and then trade him or trade him as soon as you're able to at the deadline. That's what I would do.
2: Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. They would be in a pretty bad
1: basketball situation if they just let him walk, I think. Okay, so and we've KD's touched tied on... The... Up, by the way, all the way through 2026. So you, like, right. that would be a really rough situation for him. Right, yeah. There's no just reworking that from there. Okay, so we've touched on
2: the two enigmatic Nets stars who were on the floor and let them down. Let's move on to the enigmatic Nets star, supposedly, uh, who was not on the floor at all, and that is Ben Simmons. So obviously just an incredibly strange saga for him. We did not see him in this series, but what is his future?
1: (laughs) I don't know, man. You know what's funny (laughs) is last night I said, because the reporting yesterday was Ben Simmons' experienced back soreness. That was the report. Mm -hmm. And so he wasn't going to play in game four. I saw it pretty cut and dry. Like this isn't a sprained ankle. This is a herniated disc, a bulging disc in his back. So yes, if it's two one and you think he has a chance to come back and swing the series, maybe it's worth the risk. Obviously Ben thought it was, he was planning to play, but down three Oh, with the series basically over, I didn't see the point. And so I totally was Again, I understand with Ben Simmons's resume and his backstory, it just seems like the latest flakiness from an extremely flaky person. I get that. But in the vacuum, it was dude with hernia in his back isn't going to come back in a series down 3-0 to try to make something happen. I get that. But then we had the report today that Rich Paul met with the Nets brass, and now the mental health thing is popping up again. And it's confusing – because, and again, this is a very delicate area because we don't know what's going on with Ben and the mental health stuff is a very, very sensitive topic and we can't, we, we can have our assumptions about what we think is going on, but those are dangerous assumptions. You don't know what's going on in Ben's head and I certainly am, am not going to comment on that. But what's weird is th- it seemed like the mental health stuff was associated with the way Doc Rivers treated him and the way Joel Embiid treated him and the way Daryl Morey treated him. And the way Philly fans treated him. That's what it seemed like. And then we haven't heard much about the mental health stuff this entire last part of the season. So for it to like come back to the forefront of the conversation is strange. My theory is that the Nets brass is pissed that he didn't play in game four. Which I and they probably came to him, and then that's when it got brought back up again. But we don't know. We just don't know. It's a very, very delicate situation. To make a long story short. I would approach Ben Simmons this summer and be like, are you going to play next year, man? Because if not, we need to know, we need to move you. Right. But like, this is turning into one of the strangest sagas. And if you have to trade Ben Simmons again this summer after he didn't play a single game for the Nets, his value is lower than it's ever been. So it's just a really, really tough predicament. But I I don't know what you do. And it's such a sensitive topic that you can't kind of, it's hard to come out and be forthright about it. You know what I mean? If you we're just down the NBA right now
2: about where do you think you would take Ben Simmons in a draft out of everybody? Just if you're trying to build a winning team. Oh man, a that's tough a good one. question.
1: Um, man. man, here's the thing. Imagine Ben Simmons in his physical prime. Think like last season before he got hurt or before this whole back thing came up and imagine plugging him into like Boston's system, you know, like as a mm-hmm. guy that, that can defend in an all switching system and can attack closeouts and things like that. The, the, sh- the inability to shoot is a massive problem. The lack of offensive confidence is a massive problem, but he is such a devastating weapon on the defensive end that I think if you put him in a situation... Because with the Sixers, he was weirdly depended on offensively. So when he became a shell of himself that couldn't score, especially in fourth quarters, in that series against the Hawks, it was devastating to the Philly offense. But in theory, if he's in a different role, there are lots of teams around the league that play non-shooters. So if he could be a Draymond Green, meaning like, he's around other great offensive players and his job is to be a playmaker off of that attention and to be the best defensive player on his team. Ben Simmons was in the, was in the defensive player of the year conversation last year. So I would argue that kind of like we had a debate the other day, where would you rank Draymond in his value in the league? And we talked about, remember Carson, we said he'd be top 15 if he was on the Warriors because the value he brings to that specific system was worth so much Mm -hmm. well the the inverse of that here is if i could put ben simmons into the perfect scenario for him to cover for his weakness he's a top 20 25 player but yeah if if anything is out of line there he suddenly does drop way 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 further down that list and so i would say that inherently makes you further down that list because we can't always have perfect control over our circumstances if that makes sense Absolutely. And like you
2: said, you don't know if the guy's even going to play basketball, but I totally agree with the general Draymond comp there. I feel like Ben Simmons at his best is a superstar role player and that he does so many little things. He has such winning traits. If you're talking about the playmaking, you know, not needing to dominate the ball, if he's willing to be that short roller and whatnot, and obviously everything defensively just about right situation and embracing that role. Okay. So Obviously, we start with the players here, but inevitably, when there is a team that has accumulated this much talent and yet one of their stars won't get the vaccine, one of their stars doesn't even play basketball for them, and they lose in a disappointing fashion like this, a lot of eyes are going to turn to the coach. So, do you think Steve Nash is coaching the Knicks next year? And if not, who
1: is, Jason? I think he will be. And I've seen some reporting on that. Now, that can change. That can change just because KD has a change of heart over the next two weeks. You know what I mean? Right. KD could literally go back and watch a bunch of tape from the series and feel like they weren't organized enough and then approach Josiah and be like, yeah, I want a new guy. So that can change. But the reporting is, is that he's coming back. I've defended Steve Kerr to some extent on this show. He doesn't. You you hit the nail on the head, Carson. He's had a bunch of external circumstances that were out of his control a lot of the way that they play offensively has to do with the way Kyrie and KD want to play. Right. You know, they don't really have a ton of like big versatile wings to run uh, an awesome drive and kick offense because the only way they can do that is by playing Patty Mills and Seth Curry and Goran Dragic all at the same time and then they become so small that they get mm-hmm. demolished. Even when they went small tonight, they were getting demolished on the offensive glass. So it's kind of just like a downside of roster construction in a lot of ways. You know, I I think that in terms of, like, if they did make a coaching change, who you bring in, so much of that depends on what they do with the roster this summer. If they bring back all of the same guys, you need to find somebody that can coach them up in a similar manner to Imei Udoka and try to embrace some of that five-out basketball in that regard. But if there's a massive tr- transition in roster over the summer, then so much depends on where they land with personnel because you need to have a coach that fits the personnel that you have. My guess is that Steve Nash will be back.
2: All right, well, Jason, this show for many nights this year was known as Lakers Tonight, and then some things changed, but we got to tie in a bit of a Lakers angle here because obviously felt like nothing could be worse than what happened with them, but do you think the Lakers had a more disappointing
1: season this year or the Nets? The Lakers, man. Like... Yeah. The Lakers were losing to the Oklahoma City Thunder <laughs> in a... In a must-win playoff game at home with LeBron James and Anthony Davis, they got manhandled by the New Orleans Pelicans. Like, this team, I, look, I, I get it that, and this is what makes it so unfair. KD is going to take a massive hit in the court of public opinion for what happened in this series. And I would argue, now, to be clear, with the KD situation and the LeBron situation, it has so much more to do with their decision-making off the court. Like I said, who you hit your wagon to, what guys Mm -hmm. you decide to surround yourself with. LeBron going after Russ was an all-time basketball mistake from one of the smartest basketball minds that we have in the game. KD choosing Kyrie, KD structuring this roster the way that he kind of decided to do, that's his fault here. It doesn't have anything to do with who he is as a basketball player. So to me, I like to keep those two topics separate. But to be clear... LeBron did a much more disastrous job <laughs> discombobulating the Lakers over the course of the last couple of years than KD did with the Nets. So I do think that that's more embarrassing. But like the flip side is, is like, I think if you plug LeBron into this series, he would have a better time trying to solve this Boston defense because he's yeah. much more of a chess player in terms of basketball. Mm-hmm. So like, I would argue that like LeBron swapped for KD probably pushes this series to five or six games. Whereas KD got swept because it's just a better matchup for LeBron. But make no mistake, the, at least the Nets were a respectable basketball team. Like we talked about right. 12 and 5 in their last 17 games, third best offense, eighth best defense in the regular season uh, over that 17 game span. The Lakers didn't have anything resembling a stretch like that this year. Like it, there was a hilarious moment early in the season where a- Anthony Davis was like, all we got to do is win 10 games in a row and the whole the whole narrative will change and i think the best they did the rest of the season was like four games in a row against bad yeah. teams <laughs> like it's just the lakers like as much as the nets were a disaster in this playoff run the lakers were an all-time dumpster fire so i would definitely give them the the trophy for that
2: i totally agree i mean the nets were this regular season 36 and 19 when kd played and all four games in the series were decided by seven or less against a team that you said you think is the title favorite. I think certainly looks the best out East right now. So I think there are different levels. I think this Lakers team is genuinely the most disappointing ever. Like I've went back and thought about it and I truly don't think there's ever been a single <laughs> underachieved expectations to this extent. They
1: were the second favorite in Vegas yeah. coming into the season. <laughs> I, yeah. The LeBron and AD together. When the, when those two play, But in the previous seasons, won like almost eighty percent of their games, and they were a five hundred team with those two guys this year. It's an all time disaster. I'm a hundred percent with you. Yeah,
2: I mean, like I said, the Nets with KD were thirty six and nineteen. The Lakers did not win thirty six games all year. So, totally with you there. (laughs) Regardless, (laughs) though, this is definitely a rough moment for KD, as we touched on earlier. And I think a lot of people have pointed to just how incredible his situation was in Golden State. And, you know, it just seemed like guaranteed titles upon titles And at the same time, like you talked about with Barkley and whatnot, there is a devaluing of those titles. But do you think KD is ever going to actually win a title without Steph and without being tied to him and just the dominance of that Warriors team that, you know, was so great before he even got there?
1: It's not out of the realm of possibility. Each year it gets a little harder as you age. That's yeah. why I'm so bummed out about LeBron blowing this season with the Russell Westbrook experiment. Because, like, LeBron was an incredible basketball player this year, and it was totally wasted. You know what I mean? And, and so, obviously, the opportunities are running out. All I would say is never count a guy out. Just like Dirk in 2011, like, all it takes is a few things breaking your way. Uh, a good matchup here, a good matchup there, a, an injury here, an injury there, a move that pans out. You know, they could make a Kyrie trade and get back a couple of pieces and capture some synergy there, and suddenly have you know something that no one can stop. So, I would say that I would put it at less than fifty percent that he gets it done. So less than a coin flip, but it's certainly still in the realm of possibility, which is why I've been cautioning people against grave dancing. In 2019, Mm -hmm. if you would have asked me if LeBron ever wins another championship again, I would have said less than a coin flip. And next thing you know, they pull off an Anthony Davis trade and they're the best team in the league next year, kick everyone's ass, and they're holding the trophy. So things can change. It's just a a question of, you know, did KD learn a valuable lesson here? Which I believe he did. And Mm -hmm. is he willing to, even though, because Kyrie's one of his best friends, man. Like, KD is fiercely loyal to Kyrie to the point where I think that he's even a little bit over defensive of some of Kyrie's quirks. And so the way that I see it, like as long as he's willing to acknowledge that and willing to make the change that he needs to make, I think that he has, he still has a good chance to get it done.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think you're spot on with evoking the 2019 LeBron comparison there. You just don't know. As long as these guys are at peak, In the conversation for best player in the world level a lot of people want to come play with them and obviously there is still a lot of basketball talent on this roster and KD has not fallen off at 33 off of an achilles tear so you know i'd be hesitant to just presume that he's gonna fall off too quickly anytime soon okay last question here for the first time we'll touch on something non-nets related looks like the raptors are about to beat the sixers so jason Obviously, you picked Toronto before this series. Are you starting What's to the wonder? Score? Okay, let me pull it up real quick. But regardless, I'll I'll get it to you in a second. Do you think, though, it's 99-82 with a minute 18 left. Do you think we may see the Sixers become the first team ever? Yeah. To blow a 3 nothing lead.
1: <laughs> Man, you could. So, so, okay, for everyone who's watching, I have not watched a single dribble of this game. I will watch the entire film tomorrow morning and I will break it down. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT. LT. I'll break it down on Twitter. And then tomorrow night we will have a full segment devoted to this. So we will break this down eventually. But as I was watching that Nets game and I was peeking up in the corner and seeing the score, you could almost feel it, Carson. You could just feel you could feel the toxic energy coming from that scoreboard. (laughs) Like you could just tell, like, I, like, I could just see like palms getting sweaty crowd, getting annoyed, potentially considering booing all of that stuff. The Sixers are the better team and they have two opportunities to beat the Raptors. They should win, but there were a lot of things that went against the Raptors to start the series. Scotty Barnes getting hurt. Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Van Vliet getting outplayed by Tyrese Maxey. There were a lot of Gary Trent Jr. and his illness and his inability to basically be functional at all in games one, two, and three. So there are some things that are favoring Toronto now. Pascal Siakam, again, I don't even know what happened tonight. He played great in game four. Gary Trent Jr. played great in game four. They finally got out in transition after getting destroyed in transition in all of the earlier games of the series. So there are some things that are headed their way. And again, for the hell, I said this last week, for the health of the game of basketball, we need Philly to lose because the approach, even though I love Joel Embiid's game, his approach to foul hunting, I have a huge problem with in terms of the watchability of the product and the health of the league in the long run. Same thing goes with James Harden. So like, I think it's important for Philly to lose and I could not think of a more magnificent fashion than them blowing a 3-0 lead. I'd be lying if I told you I wasn't rooting for it. It's absolutely what I'm rooting for, but I would, I would, again, there's a reason this has never been done before. It's absolutely been pushed to game six before. It's happened a couple of times. The team always just figures it out, and game seven at home almost always goes to the home team. There's stats on that that are crazy, so I, I still would pick Philly, but man, I... I want it. I want it bad, Carson.
2: <laughs> it's hilarious too because Nick Nurse said when they were down 3-0, we just got to get it to 3-1 and then that's been done before. Would it be more on brand for Doc Rivers or James Harden to be the first ever to blow a 3-nothing lead?
1: That's like the poetic justice of it all though, right Carson? Like Yeah. Like think of it like this. For something never to have been, that's never been done before, to be accomplished, you need a force. You need forces to come into <laughs> yeah. conjunction together, and it was going to require the all-time chokatude of James Harden with the all-time chokatude of Doc Rivers coming together to pull off this magnificent achievement. So, I, I guess, I guess that that's just it's it's poetic. That's the way it's supposed to go down.
2: Real quick. You want to guess Harden's stat line in this game?
1: Well, as history would tell us, two for 11. Was he two for 11? Please tell me he was two for 11.
2: Close. Close. Four of 11.
1: Four of 11. Okay. That's not – that's. It, but, hey, here's the thing. Four made field goals and a chance yeah. to close out a team at home to prevent having to go to Toronto. But, I mean, we've talked about that to death. We'll get more – we will get more into this series – Um tomorrow night. And like I said, tomorrow on my Twitter feed in the morning, but I, uh, oh man, I, 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 I hope so. I hope so. Carson.
2: Yeah, man. 15 and seven with five turnovers on four of 11 oh. shooting. Not exactly a big game from big game, James. All right. All right. We do have more thing here coming back to the nets. Cause we have some Kyrie news. He says he plans to re-sign with the nets quote. When I say I'm here with Kev, I think that really entails us managing this franchise together alongside Joe and Sean. So, what do you, what's your reaction to that?
1: So, not a big surprise. We've talked about on the show, Kyrie and KD's friendship is a lot stronger than I think people realize. Um, I will say this, though. Kind of like when... Do you guys remember after the the Lakers lost to the Pelicans and LeBron and AD were sitting on the bench after the game exasperated and Russ came up to him. and was like, it was like slapping him on the knee and like trying to cheer him up and, and like, like getting mad at Frank Vogel for not playing him enough and stuff like yeah. that. And there was like this, there was this weird expression on LeBron and AD's face, like this awkward, like, I can't believe this guy's talking to me right now type yeah. of energy. <laughs> like, that's the thing is like, there will be a point with every friendship because LeBron and Russ were friends. There will be a point in every friendship where eventually it becomes too much to deal with. And I do wonder if KD looks at this and goes, hey, man, this is the one thing I need from you. Like, I'm the seven-footer. I can be a defensive fulcrum. I can be this great playmaker that I can be from time to time. You're the guy who's supposed to be able to create his own shot against any defense. And he was like completely chopped off at the knees after game one. And so, you know, from the standpoint of Kevin Durant, I would just be watching out for KD eventually just being sick of him. All right, guys, that is all we have for tonight. I sincerely appreciate your support as always. Check out my Twitter feed tomorrow morning for some breakdowns of the games from tonight. And then tomorrow night, after the final buzzer of the final game, we will get into the weeds about the two games from tonight as well as everything that was going on In tomorrow night's slate. As always, I appreciate your guys' support and we will see you tomorrow.
0: The volume. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue, while you prep your meats.